the children of Israel's return from captivity. Um, we see that uh, about, oh, 85 years before what we get into today, uh, Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came and sacked Jerusalem, took a bunch of uh, the, Israel, the children of Israel captive. Uh, about uh, almost 20 years later, uh, he had to go back, and uh, they destroyed everything. They laid the temple waste, uh, they destroyed the walls, uh, everything like that. And um, we see that uh, after the 70 years of captivity, um, Cyrus comes on the scene, uh, the king of Persia, and he allows the children of Israel to return, uh, as was prophesied in Isaiah, that he was called by name, that Cyrus would, in fact, come, um, and that he would allow the, the children of Israel to go and to rebuild the temple. So we have this order that goes out throughout the entire kingdom, and out of all of the Jews that were there in the kingdom at the time, there's only about 50,000 that come back. Um, so a very, very small number of what they would have represented there uh, in the kingdom return. Um, they get there, and they are super motivated. They have you know, been uh, unable to worship the Lord in the way that he has asked. They have been moved from the city where God has chosen to place uh, his name, and they have been removed also from any kind of uh, high praise or high acknowledgement. They had become a, a very low people. They get back, and the young people are excited. Uh, they had never probably uh, worshipped the Lord in, in the way that he has asked in sacrificing on the altar. So they stand up this old altar, they lay a foundation, and they begin this sacrificial system. Uh, the older generation is there, and they're weeping. They're extremely sad um, because of what once was. Uh, so you have this older generation looking back at how grand everything was. They probably would have been uh, in their mid-70s at the time, um, thinking back on the temple that Solomon had built, and they would have been discouraged. And they would not have meant to discourage the younger generation, um, but that was what happened. Uh, the younger generation, too, was discouraged. Uh, they left the work of building the temple. They started building their own homes and focusing on themselves. And for 15 years this happens. Haggai comes on the scene, a prophet from God, and he tells them to get back to work. And he tells them to consider their ways. Uh, everything that they had done, it had actually not profited them at all. And that wasn't the reason that they had returned to Jerusalem. So the people repent, they get back to work. Well, then the Lord calls them to repent again. He says, you know, the, the judgment that has been poured out on you, because we have this younger generation that is kind of, in a way, complaining. Uh, if it wasn't for the older generation, everything would have been fine, and we would have been here, and nothing would have, uh, would have happened the way it happened. And so you have this younger generation that looks to the older generation and has excuses, like we all do. So God calls them to repent, because they had been in the land now for 15 years, and nothing had been done. They were just as guilty as the older generation. And so they couldn't lean on that anymore. And they had to admit that what God had done was perfectly just. That God, in fact, had to do what he did according to his word. Otherwise, God would not be God. We have this instance where they repent of that. They admit that they were wrong. They admit that what they, they got what they deserved, in a sense. Um, then we see God calling them to repent again, in a sense, where everything they had done up until that point was unclean. And we tend to have the same mindset as they do. They felt that if they would just uh, do the sacrifices, then everything else would be good. If I do this, then I'll make this clean. And what God was showing is it's not transferable. 
um, what he was showing was that uncleanness is transferable. So the, the, the terrible things that I'm doing over here is actually making everything I'm doing for the Lord unclean. And so they had to repent of that as well. And we see that uh, the word of the Lord comes to the people, and he tells them that from this day forward, I'll bless you. So we think of all the things that God has taken this, this group of people through, 85 years of, of struggles, of trials, of testing, so that, that the point of it was not to make life hard. The point of it was not to make them strong in any sense. The point was to get them to the place where he could bless them. And now they're at that place. Uh, Haggai finishes his, his message uh, to uh, Zerubbabel, and he strengthens the rulers there. Um, Zerubbabel would have been king um, had they actually had rights to the, the throne, but because they were under the rule of Persia, he was not. Uh, so the Lord is trying to encourage the leader of the people, Zerubbabel, uh, to be strong. Uh, we're going to pick up here in Zechariah chapter 1, verse 7. Zechariah is a young man. Haggai was an older man. Uh, Zechariah would have probably been somewhere between the ages of 13 to 19. We're not really sure what exactly his age was, but there's a, a word that is used in here that references basically a, a boy. Um, so 13 to 19, we think of Daniel, probably in that same age range. Jeremiah, when he was called, probably a, a child. Uh, just uh, something to consider. You know, we have a group of, uh, of men about that age in this room next door. Um, at times, we may expect too little uh, from them. Uh, these were men that did amazing things, and it wasn't because of anything of them. It's because the Lord did it through them. So we have Zechariah. We think of him giving this uh, opportunity to speak to the people from God, uh, all the people that could have been selected, and we have this young man, uh, Zechariah, chosen. And what we have here is a series of about eight visions that take us from chapter 1 all the way through chapter 6. And in these visions, Zechariah is, is, is basically taking these all in, and it seems one night all these visions take place. And God is trying to encourage the people through these visions, and he's trying to show them that what they're working for right now has larger implications. Um, because the, the morale of the people still, no matter what we want to think or do or feel, they would have been going to build a temple, and they still would have felt in their own hearts that this really isn't that big of a thing. We're a small people. The temple is, is smaller. It's not decorated like it once was. What, like what we're doing really doesn't matter. They might have the tendency to feel that way. And so God is trying to show them that they are a part of something that is much, much bigger than they could even imagine. And so we're going to go through these series of visions, and what we're going to do is we're going to take each vision as it comes. We're going to take it as the context, what the context is for that group of people at that current time, and then we're going to try to make application to ourselves. What can we learn from this? What can what they went through at that time, what God is revealing to them, affect our lives today? You know? So with the Lord's help, we're going to start verse 7 of Zechariah chapter 1, and we're going to read to verse 11. It says, On the 24th day of the 11th month, which is the month Shabbat, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, the son of Iddo the prophet, I saw by night, and behold, a man riding on a red horse, and it stood among the myrtle trees in the hollow, and behind him were horses, red, sorrel, and white. 
Then I said, My Lord, what are these? So the angel who talked with me said to me, I will show you what they are. And the man who stood among the myrtle trees answered and said, These are the ones whom the Lord has sent to walk to and fro throughout the earth. So they answered the angel of the Lord who stood among the myrtle trees and said, We have walked to and fro throughout the earth, and behold, all the earth is resting quietly. Uh, the first vision is going to kind of lay the groundwork for the rest of the visions to come. So we're going to take maybe a little bit more time on this first vision uh, to emphasize what's coming in the next. Um, we have here, <clears throat> Zechariah sees a, a man riding on a horse, and this man is in like a valley, and there's a, a grove of myrtle trees behind it. Now, the one thing we want to take into consideration is that First uh, Peter, it says that uh, uh, no interpretation is, is um, of itself, basically. You, we can't just make this mean whatever we want. Uh, we take in the whole of Scripture, what the myrtle tree has uh, presented itself as through the Scripture, and we see that the myrtle tree often represents the nation of Israel. Um, so here we have uh, the Lord of hosts, which we know to be the Lord Jesus Christ, seated on a horse in a valley among the children of Israel. They're not high and lifted up on a hill. They're down low. And so the, it says here, Zechariah asked this question, uh, My Lord, what are these? So the angel who talked with me said to me, I will show you what they are. Now he's going to show them, but it says, The man who stood among the myrtle trees answered and said, These are the ones whom the Lord has sent to walk to and fro throughout the earth. So even though that the Lord is concerned with his people, the children of Israel, these horses have gone to and fro throughout the earth to report back. And so they came, they come and they say, they answer the angel of the Lord who stood among the myrtle trees and said, we have walked to and fro throughout the earth and behold, the earth is resting quietly. The earth is at peace. Uh, I don't know if any of us have ever turned on the news and heard that as the tagline. Uh, the world is at peace. Um, we would assume that this is a fantastic thing. This is what the world is crying for. The, the world wants to be at peace. The world wants everything to be calm. Uh, we would love nothing more in the world to say, turn on the news and say, you know, there's really nothing to report. Everything is peaceful. We think that's what God wants. But what we're going to find out is that's not the case. The Lord's upset. The Lord doesn't want it to be peaceful right now. Then the angel of the Lord in verse 12 answered and said, O Lord of hosts, how long will you not have mercy on Jerusalem and on the cities of Judah, against which you were angry these 70 years? And the Lord answered the angel who talked to me with good and comforting words. We're just going to stop right there real quick. Everything's at rest. All of the nations have established themselves higher than the nation of Israel. And everyone else is fine, but they've been beating up on God's chosen people for over 70 years now. And so the Lord is saying, how long until you will finally have mercy on your people? And when we think of our Lord and we think of his heart, his heart is to show mercy. These people have suffered uh, uh, greatly, and they have suffered in a way beyond what God had asked. So in verse 14, it says, So the angel who spoke with me said to me, Proclaim, saying thus, says the Lord of hosts, I am zealous for Jerusalem and for Zion with great zeal. I am exceedingly angry with the nations at ease, for I was a little angry, and they helped, but with evil intent. Therefore, thus says the Lord, I am returning to Jerusalem with mercy. 
My house shall be built in it, says the Lord of hosts, and a surveyor's line shall be stretched out over Jerusalem. So the Lord makes this statement. Uh, he's answered with good and comforting words. And he says, he says, I am zealous for Jerusalem and for Zion with great zeal. And he's angry with the nations at ease. Uh, everyone else is, thinks that everything's fine, that there's no big deal. And what the Lord is saying is that he did turn the nations over to be judged and to go into the hands of the Gentiles. But they went and took it a step further. And now judgment is going to have to come on the nations. Uh, picture um, my, my son Noah uh, needs to be disciplined. And I leave him in someone's charge here. I say, you know, uh, he did this. Uh, I was, I was going to spank him. My, my habit is to, to spank the hand or to, to put him in timeout or whatever I give you as that's my form of punishment. That's what I wish to do. And I leave in your charge. And I come back and you say, well, he misbehaved and I hit him with a baseball bat. You know, that's not okay. That's, that, that, you know, that's, that's not what I meant. That's not what I intended when, when you did this. And now um, you would have to answer to me. Um, in the same way the nations are responsible. God had turned them all, the nation of Israel over, but not to, to be as brutal as they were to the nation. So basically what God is saying is that he's going to uh, make things right. Uh, and when we think of the Lord, that's what we should think of. When the Lord comes, he's going to make things right. He's not going to tell us to do it for him. He's going to do it himself. This is something he's going to accomplish. So he says in verse 16, I am returning to Jerusalem with mercy. My house shall be built in it, says the Lord of hosts, and a surveyor's line shall be stretched out over Jerusalem. A surveyor's line meaning to kind of map out the land, uh, survey the land. We know that uh, in order to, to get an idea of how big it's going to be and what he's going to make it. Uh, we tend to survey land when we're going to start a building project. Uh, that's the first thing that's going to take place. We're going to survey it, find out, okay, this is what we're going to do and how we're going to do it before anything is being built. Um, verse 17, again proclaim, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, my, shitty, my cities shall again spread out through prosperity. The Lord will again comfort Zion and will again choose Jerusalem. Um, we have this idea of he will again choose Jerusalem. Meaning he chose them. There's a period of time where they've been put aside and now he's going to choose them again. Um, and he's going to make them in such a way that through their own prosperity, they'll be spreading out. So this is the first vision that the Lord gives to Zechariah to give to the people to encourage them. The Lord knows what's going on in the world. He has every intent of responding to them with mercy now that everything's been dealt with. And he's not only going to attend to them with mercy, he's going to make them to prosper. So this is the hope that Zechariah is giving to his people. When we think of ourselves, what is the hope that spurs us on in our day-to-day -day walk? This is what it meant to the people then. What, is, what does it mean to us now? What, are, what is our hope? What are we looking forward to? What is our focus right now? Is our focus every day to get up and to go to work and to try to, to make it better ourselves? If I just make a little bit more money, uh, if I just get a little bit more vacation time, um, if I just uh, can, can get done with school or, or whatever the case may be, then everything will be calm. If I do all of these things, everything will be, will be good. 
that shouldn't be our attitude because we're focused on things that in the span of eternity aren't going to mean anything. The Lord wants to take their eyes off of the day-to-day. He wants them to put them on what's going to happen, and he wants us to work towards that goal, towards that hope. What is it that we need to be doing? So we have here really an introduction to stir us up, to encourage us, to look to the hope that's to come, and to work towards it. Um, He's not saying that it's not going to be difficult. He's not saying that it's not going to be uh, challenging. It's going to be all of those things. But in the end, he's giving us a glimpse of what's going to happen. He tells us we win in the end. We don't need to fear those things. So this is the, the tone that he sets in this first vision. We're going to get into the second vision um, we have here in verse 18. Verse 18 says, Then I raised my eyes and looked, and there were four horns. And I said to the angel who talked with me, What are these? So he answered me, These are the horns that have scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. Then the Lord showed me four craftsmen. And I said, What are these coming to do? So he said, These are the horns that scattered Judah so that no one could lift up his head. But the craftsmen are coming to terrify them, to cast out the horns of the nations that lifted up their horn against the lad of Judah to scatter it. Um, So this is the vision he sees. He looks up, he sees four horns. Uh, We know from Daniel and from other texts that horns represent uh, basically a nation or a kingdom, a power in the the world. Um, We also see in Daniel as he gives the picture of the nations to come, basically the four world powers that will exist. Um, We see that we have Babylon, uh, Medo-Persian Empire, the Greek Empire, and Rome. Uh, these are the four horns that are, we would assume are represented in this. So you have four horns coming, then you have four craftsmen coming, and it's going to be the craftsman's job to destroy those horns. Uh, I'll tell you up front, there's a lot of opinion on who the craftsmen are. Um, there's a lot of different thoughts on who the craftsmen are. Um, we'll take the simplest thought. Um, that as the Lord raises up a horn, we have Babylon, he raises up a a craftsman to destroy that horn. And we see Medo-Persia was the one that destroys that horn. So we have a craftsman raised up, destroys the horn. Well, Medo-Persia becomes this horn, and we have a craftsman in Greece that comes up, destroys Medo-Persia. We have Greece as a horn. Now we have a craftsman come up and destroy. Rome stands up, destroys uh, Greece. And finally, Rome becomes that horn, and we have the kingdom that... Christ will bring that destroys that final horn, uh, and then, then there's no more horns after that. Uh, that's the, the simplest uh, interpretation to take of this vision. There are others, but it all ends in the same way. No matter what the world brings, no matter what the world power is, the time when the Lord comes, it, it's going to belong to him. So whatever interpretation we take, whatever we take it to mean, the end result is the same. Um, why this vision? Why this vision of four horns? Why this vision of four craftsmen? And that's actually the end of the vision. Um, basically saying, right now the children of Israel are under a yoke. They're under a government. Uh, they do not have their own rights. Um, and they're going to be held to this. And he's saying that there's going to be four nations that are going to come. And technically they're going to be under the yoke of any of those nations. Uh, he's letting them know that in the end, the nations will be destroyed. Those things will be done away with. Again, trying to encourage them. 
I think the children of Israel, even today, have been guilty of looking to world governments to solve their problems. Um, we have throughout basically their history from the destruction of Jerusalem to now where when the Jewish people are in trouble, they look to a government to help them. They look to a government to kind of, okay, you know, you're going to take care of us, or you're going to do this, or you're going to do that. And every time they've done that, it's, it's turned out extremely terrible for them, uh, extremely terrible. And now that they are even considered uh, their own nation, Israel, they come before the UN, they come before different councils, and they're looking for help. They're looking to us to help them. You know, you're going to solve our problems kind of a thing. If the U.S. and Canada and England would all just support us and drive back all of these uh, Arab countries around us, then everything would be fine and we would be left alone in our land. Um, and I think that's their mindset. They tend to look to their own workings, their own doings to solve things. Um, let us not be like the children of Israel. The United States government is not going to solve all our problems. <laughs> you know, if you're counting on them to take care of you and to solve all your problems, you're going to end up disappointed, just like the children of Israel ended up disappointed. Um, let us not be so concerned and involved. We need to be aware of what's going on, but we don't need to be so entrenched that it affects our daily lives. Um, the things will go how things will go. Again, we know how the story ends. Um, let's not get caught up in the, the passion or the, the anger or the issues of the day. Um, it's a way to take our mind off of the one that's coming and put it on the world and to bring us down. We don't want to be brought down. Um, we want to be looking up. We want to be looking for things that are coming. So uh, the, we can learn a lot from the children of Israel in that way and, and, and what not to do um, today with our government. <clears throat> All right, we're, do, we're doing good. We have our third vision. Remember, Zechariah gets all eight in one night. We're just, we're getting four, so we're doing okay here. So we have our, our third vision is going to be this man with this measuring line. Uh, it says, Then I raised my eyes and looked, and behold, a man with a measuring line in his hand. So I said, Where are you going? And he said to me, To measure Jerusalem, to see what is the width and what is its length. And there was the angel who talked with me going out, and another angel was coming out to meet him, who said to him, Run, speak to this young man, saying, Jerusalem shall be inhabited as towns without walls, because of the multitude of men and livestock in it. For I, says the Lord, will be a wall of fire all around her, and I will be the glory in her midst. Uh, so we have here a vision of a man with a measuring line. Again, a surveyor's line. He's, he's going to survey the land. Uh, he's got a building project in mind. He's got the plans already figured out, and he's surveying the land to fit it into place. Uh, some people believe this man with a measuring line to be the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Uh, we've seen him as the man seated on the horse. Uh, they take the, this man with a measuring line to be the Lord himself. It's not as clear in this portion, um, but it would fit in context. So whether it is or isn't, Again, it doesn't have too much effect on the outcome of the, the text here, um, but just for your own information. Uh, so we have Zechariah asked, where are you going? And he said to me, to measure Jerusalem to see what its width and what is its length. And there was the angel who talked with me going out, and another angel was coming out to meet him. So we have the angel that's kind of been with Zechariah. We normally refer to him as the interpreting angel. And we have another angel now coming on the scene to talk with this angel that's been accompanying, accompanying us. Uh, 
And it says, who said to him, run, speak to this young man, saying, Jerusalem shall be inhabited as towns without walls because of the multitude for men and livestock in it. Uh, we have this first intent. Um, he tells him to run, to be quick, to hurry. Um, when we have good news, it's not good for us to hold it in. Uh, it's not good for us to keep it to ourselves. It's not, we, we want to be excited. We want to run and we want to tell someone quickly what's going to take place, what's going to happen, the good news that we have. Um, we can think of it uh, with the gospel. Um, do we run and tell others the good news, uh, that Christ died to save their soul, that the debt of sin is paid for, that by faith in Christ we can have eternal life? Uh, that's better news than what Zechariah is getting here. And he's telling him to run in this circumstance. We should be running as well, running to tell people. What is the picture? Uh, it says, Jerusalem shall be inhabited as towns without walls. Okay, so without walls. Walls do two things, uh, mainly. They do many things, but two things mainly. Um, they set out a border of a town. Like this, this is how big this town can get based on where I build my walls. Um, so if I have my, my own personal property and I'm going to build a wall, I'm going to build it at the edge of the, the line because this is, this is now my property. Uh, the second reason you build a wall is for protection, uh, to keep other people out, uh, to be able to have security and safety. So one, to define the space you have, and the second, to protect the space you have. But he's saying that Jerusalem is going to be a town without walls, meaning that it, it, it's going to grow. There's no walls that are going to contain the size that it's going to become. So we worry about protection. Okay, so I have a land that basically I can get as big as I want, but how am I going to keep it safe? So it's growing because of the multitude of men and livestock in it. And it says in verse 5, For I, says the Lord, will be a wall of fire all around her. I will be the glory in her midst. So the Lord himself is going to protect this city. We don't need a wall. The Lord's going to do it. And so the Lord is, is comforting the children because right now they don't have a wall. <laughs> they're, they're working, they're building a temple, and the wall is in ruins, and they're completely vulnerable to attack. Um, if somebody came and attacked the, the children of Israel at this point in time, they would have probably been wiped out. They, they, they're not upstanding military. Uh, they probably did not know any military strategy. These are simple people that have just returned from captivity. So he's encouraging them in the fact that what is really small at this current point in time, you're working on something that's going to be greater than you can imagine. And you won't have to fear this issue of what if somebody comes and takes it from me. The Lord keeps it safe. We have the same picture as we apply it to ourselves with the church. The church can get as big as it wants to. The Lord is going to build it. We need to call in as many people as will come, and as the church continues to grow, there's no end to it. There's no wall that stops it. We have here, too, the Lord protects it. Um, when all of the tribulation starts, when everything begins to happen, the Lord's going to pull us out. We don't have to worry about those things. The Lord's going to protect us. Uh, sometimes we do things concerning our own safety. Uh, sometimes we do things concerning our own um, our own view of ourselves. Uh, sometimes our pride is our greatest hindrance. Uh, we don't want to 
uh, be thought of a certain way. Uh, sometimes when you tell people that you believe the Bible, they, they think you're dumb. They think you're so dumb. How, how could you possibly believe what the Bible says? You must be a fool. So not wanting to be thought of in that light, we kind of keep it to ourselves and we don't say too much. Um, we don't need to be afraid of those things. Uh, we don't need to worry about the outcome of those things. Um, some people are afraid to share the gospel at work, afraid to lose their job. Um, you need to be smart about things, but you don't need to be fearful about things. The Lord takes care of us. We belong to him. He paid for us. When we think of this idea that when the Lord came and put himself on the cross, was lifted up, his blood was shed, and God judged him there on the cross, all the sins were taken away. When we trust Christ by faith, that work is applied to us. The sin's been forgiven, but we need to come by faith and ask to be forgiven. When that takes place, it's wiped away. There's not a point in time where we're going to have to fight for that or do battle over that. He paid for us with his own blood, with his own suffering. Uh, the things that we worry about maybe in our own day-to-day -day lives um, shouldn't be our main concern most of the time. Uh, I know it's easy to worry. Worrying is a, a natural part of life. Um, when my son first started crawling, I was worried. When he started walking, I was worried. Now that he's basically running, I'm even more worried. Every moment it's he's going to fall and he's going to hit his head or he's going to this or he's going he's to eat something that he's not supposed to. So I get it. I mean, don't, don't think that I'm standing up here saying I have not a worry in the world. Um, but I'm saying not to be consumed with those things. Um, there's many people that, that become consumed with the worries of the world and they become unable to be used for the kingdom of God. And what God is trying to do to these people here, telling them of the great things that are going to come, he does to us. The Lord will return. The Lord will take us to be with him, and forever we will be with the Lord. That's the end. That's what's going to happen. It's a done deal. We need to have this idea of what should we be doing now. Obviously, we're not supposed to be sitting around. Um, if that was the case, he would have taken us right when we trusted Christ. There's a purpose why we're here, and we need to be consumed with, with that purpose. What are we here to do? So we have here um, verse 6, uh, continuing this vision, this future uh, joy to come. It says, up, up, flee from the land. I think your Bibles might say ho, ho. Does it say ho, ho, Santa Claus? Yeah. No, up, up, flee from the land of the north, says the Lord, for I have spread you abroad like the four winds of heaven, says the Lord. Up, Zion, escape you who dwell with the daughter of Babylon. For thus says the Lord of hosts, he sent me after glory to the nations which plunder you. For he who touches you touches the apple of his eye. For, you, for surely I will shake my hand against them, and they shall become spoil for their servants. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me. Uh, so we have here urgency. Up, up, go. You know, flee from the land of the north. Uh, the land of the north we see is, is Babylon, and the reason it states from the north is because if you were traveling from Babylon to Jerusalem, you would go along the Fertile Crescent, so you would be entering from the north. That's, that's where you would be coming from uh, if you were coming from Babylon. So the interesting thing in verse 6, it says, For I have spread you abroad like the four winds of heaven. So God is the one that has cast out his people, and he spread them abroad as far as they can go. 
And now he's calling them to return. Okay? That's the picture. What are reasons why we wouldn't return? Reasons why we wouldn't return maybe because we're angry at God. Wait a minute. You mean you sent me all the way out here and now you're calling me and I'm supposed to come back? You're angry. Uh, The second thing is you consider what you have now to be better than what God will give you. So I'm going to stay here in Babylon. I don't want to go back. Um, The third reason, maybe, could be in that same sense, uh, what am I going to do if I go back? The fear of the unknown. What is it really going to be like? Um, Just the the doubting, the, the worrying that incapacitates people. Maybe that's what keeps us in Babylon. Uh, We have the same thing today. Um, Just a few uh, weeks ago, uh, our dear friend David McKay, who I'm sure everyone here has known or met, um, has been witnessing to a a group of of Mormons, uh, two boys that have come to the door, and they've had great back and forth, great conversation. And David was really curious why they believed what they believed. They were really curious why David believed what he believed. And they were going back and forth, and it got to the point where they got to a certain text um, in one of the, the Mormon books that said that Jesus would be born in Jerusalem. And uh, the Mormon kind of sat there thinking, well, we know he was born in Bethlehem, but my book is saying it's born in Jerusalem. And so David was just saying, like, you know, if you were to read the Bible and you were to see something like that, what would you think? Well, it's not true. This is a mistake. So obviously we can't trust the Bible. And so he asked them, so seeing what you see in your own text, what do you think? And there was this moment where there's this struggle, he said, this inner struggle. What am I going to do? I can't really give up everything I have. My family, uh, my future, uh, the, the security that the, the, the group provides. Can I really give that up for this? And their answer at the time was, no, I can't. I can't give it up. Um, and I think there's many people in the world today, they think of this offer that goes out and Satan going out as well, um, discouraging people. You have someone that hears the gospel, wants to trust Christ, and Satan taps him on the shoulder and says, uh, but you're too wicked. He wouldn't, he wouldn't save you. He would save good people, but, but not someone like you, to discourage them. The Lord will save anybody that comes. Whosoever will may come. There, there, there's not this standard. We have here in this picture, he's calling his people to come back. He sent them out because of their own wrongdoing, and in their own hearts, they knew that to be true. They had already admitted it earlier, that they were guilty of it. That's the first step. Sometimes it's hard for people to come to repent and to ask God to save them because of their own pride. Uh, They don't want to admit really how bad they are inside. So we have here, he tells them to to come back. And we see in that day there's going to be many, 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 many that come. For thus says the Lord of hosts, He sent me after glory to the nations which plunder you, for he who touches you touches the apple of his eye. It's a very important phrase there in verse 8. He sent me after glory. Uh, We know of the Lord Jesus Christ 
his glorification was his resurrection. We see that he says, um, then he would be glorified. Uh, so he is risen, he is seated at the right hand, he has been glorified by the Father, and now he is going to come again. At the time when the people are reading this, they're just reading it, they're not really sure after the glory, okay, they kind of just take it for what it is, after the glory, he'll come. So we know a little bit more just because of more that's been revealed. He who touches you touches the apple of his eye, or basically the pupil, your pupil. Um, so people that have offended uh, Israel, it's like you've poked God in the eye. Um, I don't like anyone near my eyes. It's like one of the most sensitive things. In, I went to the eye doctor for the first time, and he got really close. I mean, like, I couldn't. I couldn't do it. I was like, no, we're okay. <laughs> yeah, I don't need to, I don't need, I don't, I don't really need you to check that much. It was, it was too unnerving. I felt like he was going to sabotage and, you know, go for it right then and there. So I did all the, the sight stuff and I did, you know, I can, I can read, you know, I can see that there. And then he went to, and I said, no, we're, we're good. <laughs> I don't, we don't need to do that. So I, I could understand here, uh, this idea of being poked in the eye, uh, would be, uh, not, not great. Verse nine, uh, for surely I will shake my hand against them, and they shall become spoil for their servants. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me. Uh, oh, man. There's an interesting exchange here. Um, verse 8, it says, For thus says the Lord of hosts, he sent me. Okay? So you have this picture of the Lord of hosts saying, He sent me, the Lord of hosts. At the end of verse 9, he says, Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me. And it's almost like, wait a minute here, the Lord of hosts is sending the Lord of hosts? The Jewish people do not believe in a Messiah that is divine. They believe him to be a person. He's just going to be a man, a human being. Um, what this is laying implications for is the deity of the one to come. The Lord of hosts sends the Lord of hosts. Uh, one and the same, in a sense. Uh, here it is in in text, but in hidden form, I guess we would say. Uh, verse 10, Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, and behold, I am coming, and I will dwell in your midst, says the Lord. Many nations shall be joined to the Lord in that day, and they shall become my people. And I will dwell in your midst, then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you, and the Lord will take possession of Judah as his inheritance in the holy land, and will again choose Jerusalem. Be silent, all flesh, before the Lord, for he is aroused from his holy habitation. Uh, this is the only time, as far as I know, in the Bible in verse 12 where it refers to Jerusalem as the holy land. Uh, so that's where we get that term. He's telling them to rejoice, to sing, to be excited. Not only is he going to come and restore all these things, build all of these things, um, but there's going to be many nations that are become his people as well. Um, there's going to be, we know, uh, because of the book of Revelation, that there's going to be those that were converted because of the preaching of the 144,000 at that time, and they will be known as the nations that are round about Jerusalem, and they will come and they will worship. They will not have necessarily the same relationship that the children of Israel have. The children of Israel will function as the kingdom of, of priests that they were intended to function as, and the nations around will come uh, to the Lord in Jerusalem, and Jerusalem will be head of the nations at that point in time. Uh, we know all this to be uh, his historical fact in a sense. Uh, he said he was going to do it, and he's already basically saying it's, it's a done deal. It's taken place. Uh, 
Um, we have five minutes left. I really wanted to get to this fourth vision. It's like one of my favorite visions in the Bible. Uh, so what we're going to do is we're going to read through it because you'll enjoy it and then um, just make a few comments. But when we start again, I'll come back to it. Um, so we have here this, this joyous time. He's calling all the people to come back. This is what he's going to do. It's going to be great. Keep working, keep working, keep working. So in chapter 3, it says, Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to oppose him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Uh, so we have here Joshua, the high priest, uh, at the time, at the current time, he's the high priest. Um, he's standing there, and as high priest, he is a representative of the people, the entire nation of Israel. Uh, we know that to be the case in this instance because in verse uh, 2 here, uh, it talks about the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem. And at the end of verse 10, it talks about, in that day, says the Lord of hosts, everyone will invite his neighbor, speaking of the land that they take part in. So we know he's talking about the entire nation here. But he's standing here before the angel of the Lord, and we have Satan standing at his right hand to oppose him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? So immediately the Lord silences Satan. You can't speak. This is, a, is this not a brand plucked from the fire? And we would think of Joshua must be a representation of this really righteous, uh, really glorious uh, image uh, of the people that they have uh, overcome, in a sense, sin, and they are worthy of being in the presence of God and for God to say to Satan, you have no charge to bring against him. So what is the current state? Uh, we're going to look at Joshua. In verse 3, it says, Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and was standing before the angel. Um, that word filthy really means like excrement covered. or it, We don't really have a perfect explanation, but that's as close as we can get. So not only is he filthy, but he's smelly and just it's, it's terrible um, and he's standing there and the Lord is saying is this not a brand plucked from the fire and Satan is probably looking at him and saying this 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 guy look at him he's not worthy he can't be here he has no right look at his garments he's filthy he doesn't deserve it verse 4 then he answered and spoke to those who stood before him, saying, Take away the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, See, I have removed your iniquity from you, and I will clothe you with rich robes. And I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head, and they put the clothes on him. And the angel of the Lord stood by. Um, so we have this picture in verse 5. Zechariah couldn't keep silent. He says, Let them put a clean turban on his head. He gets all excited about it, that the clean clothes are coming out. We have here uh, the word of the Lord saying, take the garments away and give them righteous garments. He's going to remove the iniquity and he's going to put righteousness on Joshua. Now, what right does God have to do that? That's a good question. What right does God have to do that? How can he say, okay, I'm, I'm going to take this away and I'm going to make you righteous? Because what? And that's what people feel today. Uh, you tell somebody, you know, you tell a non-believer that you're saved, that you know for sure you're going to heaven. And their response, like Satan, will be, what makes you think you have the right 
to say that? What makes you think that you can know for sure that when you die, you go to heaven? I've seen your life. And let me tell you, I'm more righteous than you. So if God is going to let you in, he's going to have to let me in. And what we're doing is we're looking at our own works. We see that here Joshua doesn't say a thing. Why? Because Joshua's guilty. <laughs> it's, it's plain. He's guilty. And when we really look at ourselves and we look at God's standard, take whatever, whatever standard you want, your own personal standard, the standard in the word of God, you fall short. You're guilty. It's hard to admit that at times. But for those that are willing to come before the Lord and say, Lord, I'm, I'm guilty. I don't deserve to be here. You see, God sent his son to die for those people. Only the people that are willing to come and admit their guilt are the ones that are saved. God sent his son to remove all of it, remove all of that guilt, remove all of that filthiness. And we have later on this picture of the coming branch, the branch that will come, and he'll set things right. So this morning, if you are asked the question, uh, what makes you think uh, you'll be in heaven when you die? Uh, and if your answer is along the lines of, well, you know, I'm a really good person. Uh, I try to do uh, good things all the time, and I just hope that I'll be let in. Well, you're basically still in darkness. Uh, those that are going know they're going. Not because of any special uh, privilege we have, but simply because we've trusted in Christ, the only one that can save us. Um, it's not a matter of how good I am. We have this idea, though, of uh, does that mean I can do whatever I want? I'm saved, I can do whatever I want. Of course not. We see throughout this entire text, the reason God is giving them all of this encouragement is so that they would work, that they would work for something, that they would build it, that it would be established to keep working. The same thing he tells us. We're not here to just sit here and come to meeting and go home and be happy with our own salvation. We have a job to do. Um, so I encourage you this week and the coming weeks to get out there and let's do our job. Let's work. He's bought and paid for us. Um, we owe him that. It only makes sense uh, to do what he's asked. So let us, uh, let us be strong and let us get back to work. Go ahead and close in prayer. Uh, Heavenly Father, we do thank Thee uh, for Your Word. We do thank Thee for Your Son, that You would send Your only begotten Son to die for us. Uh, Father, that we might have these filthy garments taken away and be given robes of righteousness. We're thankful that we know for sure of our salvation. Father, that we know we will see our Savior face to face, that we know we will be with Him for all eternity. Father, we pray for uh, our own work that You've given to us, that we would be strong, uh, that we would continue to go out, and that we would indeed uh, be found waiting and watching when your son returns. Uh, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.